Well, good afternoon. A little bit earlier than normal. If you're joining me live, well done. Good job. I'm glad you got the message. If you're not joining live and you're watching at three o'clock thinking it's going to be live, sorry about that. Uh, but sometimes you have to have adjustments and today is one of those days and that's okay. Uh, appreciate you watching even if it's not live. A lot of folks view these lessons and I hope that They've been helpful for you. Uh, earlier this year, we went through the book of Matthew uh, once the shutdown started and uh, we started doing these lessons on Facebook Live and also on our website at westerwin.com and um, went through the book of Matthew, went through the book of Acts this past summer and now this fall we've been going through uh, the book of the Psalms, a wonderful book of worship and prayer. So it's nice to see that some of my regulars have gotten the message. Uh, great to see Larry and Lynn Murphy here. Love and prayers to all of you and your wonderful family. Uh, Lenny and Joe Allard, great friends of ours, and um, Cindy and Eric Mosley, wonderful to see that you all are joining in as well. I'm sure there will be others that may join in over the next uh, half hour or so. Um, and of course, many others that will be able to watch it online and uh, looking forward to that. This week with the election uh, that is still ongoing, not settled just yet, uh, we have, um, I've been covering some royal psalms. Royal psalms are those psalms uh, that have to do with the king or a prayer for the king or possibly written by a king. Most of them were, as you know, uh, because of King David's input into the Psalter, as we call it. Uh, and the ones that we're going to look at today uh, could very well be attributed to him as well. But uh, want to, with one exception, uh, and that would be one that we get to look at today. That's uh, a psalm written by his son, apparently, King Solomon. At any rate, uh, these are um, psalms that talk about the king, pray for the king, call on the king to act with justice, uh, give praise to God for the king. And so I thought, well, with this being an election uh, week, uh, not that we're electing a king, but that we are electing a ruler, a uh, civil ruler, and that's what the king was. He was a civil ruler, although in the nation of Israel, it, it was different because it was a kingdom, first of all, that's different. But secondly, it was a theocracy, which means that it was a not a democratic republic like the United States of America, but a in a sense a theocratic kingdom. The real king ultimately was the Lord himself, and the constitution, if you will, the law of the land was the law of Moses. It was the law of God, and uh, and that's different. Uh, that's different uh, for us today. The chosen nation is not the United States of America or any other sovereign nation that we see currently in the world, but rather the chosen nation, the chosen people of God is the church. That's what we gather from the New Testament. And it is a kingdom of priests, a priestly kingdom, royal priests, however you want to describe that <clears throat> in great passages like First Peter chapter 2 and other places. Our citizenship is in heaven, as we have been talking about in the last week or two in our study of Philippians on Sunday afternoons, which, by the way, this Sunday afternoon, that study will also be a little earlier than normal. It, too, will be at one o'clock central time. But the fact that our citizenship is in heaven doesn't mean we don't care what goes on here in earth, on earth. And the fact that our citizenship is in heaven also doesn't mean that we don't have a dual citizenship because we also 
recognize that we are citizens of this world and, and citizens of some nation. And so this week has been an, an especially challenging week and over the last several months, especially challenging uh, elect, election year. And so we continue to pray for our God to bless our nation, to bless our leaders, whoever they end up being. And we pray that uh, the Lord will uh, bless um, our country just as wherever you are. And I do have some friends that uh, are in Ukraine uh, and perhaps some other places. I, I do you know, recognize that uh, you pray for the well-being of your nation as well and rightly so. Uh, the great thing about the kingdom of Christ uh, that Jesus told Pilate about when he was standing before Pilate um, hours before his life was taken is my kingdom is not of this world. And so that kingdom transcends all boundaries, all languages, all ethnic, all economic, all political uh, views that um, that kingdom includes people from everywhere. And we're grateful uh, for that. What a great, what a great blessing. <clears throat> All of that in mind, let's uh, look at some of the Psalms. Last Tuesday, a couple of days ago, we looked at Psalms 2, which was a great, uh, great Psalm to start out with in this section. And then also Psalms 61, 63, and 21. Some of those, like uh, at least one of the ones that we're going to read today, uh, were likely read during the coronation of a new king. And certainly one, at least one of those, the one by King Solomon in Psalm 72 that we'll look at after this first one, uh, was likely one of those. But first of all, before we get to Psalm 72 and end with the great Psalm 110, which is very much a messianic uh, psalm, a psalm about the Messiah fulfilled in Jesus, also a royal psalm, um, and we'll end with Psalm 110. But first, let's turn to Psalm 101. Psalm 101. Um, it's a great psalm. It's a psalm that's attributed to King David in the heading, and, and I think that that's right. Interestingly enough, there's not a lot of indication from the content uh, that this is a royal psalm. You've heard me say the best way to know the setting is to take a look at the content, and I think that's certainly true. Uh, if you look at this psalm, then you realize that it's written by a leader, that it's written by someone who is in a leadership position. And certainly I think it's indicated that it is a psalm of the king and asking and expecting and promising for uh, judgment and justice and fairness um, in the land uh, over which he rules and in his house, as he puts it, uh, in the palace and also uh, in uh, the land. So <clears throat> this psalm, we can divide it up into um, two or three sections, uh, really two sections, but there's one verse that stands out, and we'll look at that uh, in a moment as we end. But uh, the king's personal devotion and then the king's um, job, uh, the king's pursuit of justice and his role as king, is the, the best way to define and to divide this psalm, uh, Psalm 101. So the king's personal devotion, first of all, in verses one through four, where the king will be uh, acknowledging that he worships God in his personal life. It's not just a, a job. It's not just that he is the king of the nation of Israel, um, but that he recognizes that he too is a worshiper of God and is called upon to do that. So Psalm 101, verses 1 through 4, uh, I will sing of your love and justice. To you, Lord, I will sing 
praise. I will be careful to lead a blameless life. When will you come to me? Uh, we have heard on several of these psalms, the psalmist writing and asking for God to act in his life and to deliver him from his enemies and from his difficulties. And certainly this psalm includes that as well. Uh, being king <laughs> or any other political ruler doesn't stop you from being human. And uh, in some cases, it causes even more difficulty and conflict and even danger. Uh, the psalmist David uh, writes and asks for God to act in his own life, but also in behalf of the people that he leads. Um, but he affirms, first of all, that, hey, this is something serious for me personally, not just in my role as king, but rather as, uh, as a follower of God myself. Verse two, I will be careful to lead a blameless life. When will you come to me? I will conduct the affairs of my house with a blameless heart. Likely speaking of his palace, uh, his family, his servants uh, could also certainly apply uh, to uh, the people who were under him as ruler of his house, ruler of the land of Israel. Uh, verse three, I will not look with approval on anything that is vile. I hate what faithless people do. I will have no part of it. The perverse of heart shall be far from me. I will have nothing to do with what is evil. Oh, that all of our rulers would have that same attitude. And as we know, David failed in that miserably at times. Uh, but this was his heart. He was not called the man after God's own heart for nothing. He, he actually wanted to serve God and wanted to serve God genuinely and sincerely and faithfully. And so that's what he prays for. And that's what he uh, 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 is actually committing himself to and saying, look, I'm not going to be around the people that act without faith. I'm not going to, they're not going to have input in my life. I'm not going to turn to them for help. I'm going to turn to the Lord and turn to fellow believers in God. Um, the king's personal devotion was uh, a major commitment that he made, uh, but it wasn't just that. The rest of the psalm, this, the psalmist, King David, speaks about um, his life as ruler, and just as he calls on himself to live a life of justice and faithfulness, uh, he pursues that in his role as king as well. Uh, verses 7 and 8, and then we'll come back to verse 6 if that's okay. Verses seven and eight, no one who practices deceit will dwell in my house. No one who speaks falsely will stand in my presence. Every morning I will put to silence all the wicked in the land. I will cut off every evildoer from the city of the Lord. So obviously the person writing this psalm is, and if we think of it as King David, that's certainly true. The heading indicates that, but as we've said, headings are not inspired, likely accurate, and that seems to be the case here. But whoever this is, and likely King David, he is responsible for uh, being able to um, mete out justice and judgment upon uh, people that are under his rule. And, and that's why he says, I will put to silence all the wicked in the land every single day. I'm not going to stand for it, David says. I am not going to stand for it. I'm not going to be around them personally, he has already said. And he says, I'm not going to let them be around me uh, in my house, in my palace, I'm not going to let them be around my people. Uh, 
I will put to silence all the wicked in the land. I will cut off every evildoer from the city of the Lord. Uh, you'll not be around me if you're a person that is dedicated to injustice and to unrighteousness. David says he is attentive to the faithful and righteous, not just the troublers and the needy. Uh, he is one who is going to um, not just punish, but also affirm the ones. And we think of Romans 13, that great passage that says, hey, look, I'm going to uh, I'm going to take care of those who are faithful and not just punish those uh, who aren't. How do you know that? Well, look at verse six. Again, I wanted us to come back to first, verse 6 of Psalm 101. My eyes will be on the faithful in the land that they may dwell with me. The one whose walk is blameless will minister to me. David says, I'm going to surround my, myself with people who are good, with people who are honest, with people who are faithful to the Lord. Uh, I'm going to punish the wicked. Yeah, he says that. That's how he ends. But but he also says, I, you know, I'm the role of the leader is to not just call out the bad, but to affirm the good and to uh, uh, offer up praise and encouragement. I think as church leaders uh, in, in my lifetime of ministry, 43 plus years, I, I feel like that's one of those areas that's there are a couple of things that we have difficulty with. One of them is emphasizing the urgent over the important and trying to put out fires rather than making plans for what we would hope would be a long-term uh, future in serving the Lord. But also uh, it is um, checking on the people who are causing up trouble and dealing with them and, and letting that distract us from, um, from affirming and encouraging the ones who are doing a good job. I think that's one of the things that leaders need to do is to be great encouragers and to encourage those people who are doing good. And that's what verse 6 says. Um, David says he's attentive to the faithful and righteous, not just the troublers and the needy. He's, he's attentive to them as well. Uh, but he is one who is willing uh, to have his eyes on the faithful um, and to uh, get those whose walk is blameless to be the ones who are around him. Great royal psalm, Psalm 101. Now let's turn back a few chapters to Psalm 72. Psalm 72, which according to the heading is a psalm of Solomon. Uh, King Solomon was a, a poet as well. He wrote, as best we can tell, what is called in the NIV, the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon. And uh, he wrote the, the Proverbs, which is very important. Perhaps the book of Ecclesiastes seems likely that, that he wrote that as well. And a few psalms, including this one, uh, Psalm 72. Uh, and it may very well be the, a psalm that was read at his coronation or a psalm that was read uh, for uh, subsequent kings uh, that, um, that would offer up uh, praise to God and ask his blessing upon the new king and challenge the king to act with justice and to uh, be fair and faithful uh, in his reign. And so uh, four different parts to this psalm and then a bit of a conclusion. First part is in the first four verses. Then the king is called upon to treat others with justice and righteousness. Uh, still needed today for civil authorities and leaders to treat others with justice and righteousness, to act justly in the words of Micah chapter 6. Um, psalm 72, beginning at verse 1. Endow the king with your justice. Oh, God. And we remember immediately Solomon when he became king. God told him, hey, ask me for anything. 
whatever you want, I'll give it to you. And Solomon said, give me an understanding heart. Give me wisdom. And God was so impressed that he said, okay, I'm going to give you everything that you could have asked for, but didn't. And again, we think of Jesus' words in Matthew 6, uh, that if we all seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, then everything else that we need uh, will fall into place. That's certainly true. And that's what the king prays for here. Endow the king with your justice, O God, the royal son with your righteousness, the son of David himself. King Solomon, may he judge your people in righteousness, your afflicted ones with justice. May the mountains bring prosperity to the people, the hills, the fruit of righteousness. May he defend the afflicted among the people and save the children of the needy. May he crush the oppressor. The king, as well as civil leaders today, are there to protect the innocent. They are there to protect the powerless because the powerful don't need protecting. They can, they can take care of themselves, but it's when you have somebody who's being taken advantage of and has no way of changing that themselves that you call upon the authorities to come and to help. And I think that's one of the primary uh, jobs of those in authority. Uh, and, and certainly the king was one of those and he understood that, hey, I. My part of my role is to make sure that there aren't people being taken advantage of and treated unjustly simply because there's someone in their life who has authority over them and can abuse that authority. Um, and so the king is called upon to treat others with justice and righteousness and make sure that's what's going on in the land. Uh, the second part, verses five through seven, is a prayer that the king would have a long and successful reign. And again, this makes a lot of sense if it's something that's read at the coronation at the time when the king first takes power. <clears throat> Psalm uh, 72, verse five, may he endure as long as the sun, as long as the moon through all generations. May he be like rain falling on a mown field. Ooh, doesn't that bring back a great image of perhaps days gone by? May he be like rain falling on a moan, moan field, like showers watering the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish and prosperity abound till the moon is no more. Just calling upon God's blessing upon the king and his reign, but also upon all the land over which he rules. Great, great prayer this is. The next section is verses 8 through 14. And uh, the king is called upon and God is prayed for that he would have dominion over his enemies because of this rule of justice. Since he judges justly, as Jesus tells us to do in, in John chapter 7, and the king does that in an official sense, uh, in a uh, civil authority sense. And because of that, you want him to live for a long time and you want him to be successful and you want him to be victorious over those who would challenge him. So uh, Psalm 72, beginning at verse 8. May he rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Probably the Euphrates. Um, may the desert tribes bow before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish, uh, far to the west, and of distant shores bring tribute to him. May the kings of Sheba and Seba present him gifts. Again, we think of that queen of Sheba who came and brought gifts and was so amazed at the rain and the power and the, and the wisdom and the riches of King Solomon. Not even half has been told of the greatness of this kingdom and this king. May all kings, verse 11, bow down to him and all nations serve him. For he will deliver the needy who cry out, 
the afflicted who have no one to help. Again, that's a major role of those in authority. He will take pity, verse 13, on the weak and the needy and save the needy from death. He will rescue them from oppression and violence, for precious is their blood in his sight. Just like precious in the eyes of the Lord is the death of his saints, as scripture tells us, um, the king also finds that uh, important in his life. And he cares about the people that he rules. And he wants them to have the things that that they need to have a, a healthy and victorious and successful life themselves. And so because that's in the king's heart, then um, then it's prayed that he would have dominion, that he would be successful, that his the borders of his kingdom would expand. And, and that's exactly what happened in King Solomon's reign as well. Uh, and then the last part, verses 15 through 17, and then a close at the last few verses of the psalm. Um, the last part has, uh, uh, again, co- continues that prayer that the king would have a long and victorious reign. Verse 15, long may he live, long live the king, we might say. Uh, May gold from Sheba be given him. May people ever pray for him and bless him all day long. Yes, yes. Paul tells Timothy to tell the people to to pray for their leaders, to pray for their civil authorities. Um, And that's the right thing to do. Whether you agree with them all the time or not, pray for them. Pray that God would bless them and that God would guide them. Um, verse 16, may grain abound throughout the land on the tops of the hills, may it sway. May the crops flourish like Lebanon and thrive like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. May it continue as long as the sun, earlier as long as the moon, now the sun too. Then all nations will be blessed through him and they will call him blessed. Uh, The king is called upon to act justly himself. The king is called upon to act with justice in his role as king. And then the king is prayed for that he would live a long time and that the nation, the people, the kingdom that he rules uh, would also be blessed. Uh, What a wonderful prayer this is. And again, if it is something that is sung or prayed or read at at a coronation, that's such an appropriate thing. Um, We would have to take out the word king, uh, but we could also remember that this is uh, what a great thing uh, to be read at an inauguration or at a at a time when a, a civil ruler uh, comes into a new role and, and takes power. Uh, exactly right. And then the last few verses uh, close out this psalm and close out this second book of the psalms. The psalms are divided up into five books, just like uh, the law, uh, the first five books of the Bible. And um, and so the, the psalm, psalms are divided up that way too. And this is the end of, of book two. And it ends with the song of praise, not to the king, but a song of praise to the Lord, to God himself. Verse 18, praise be to the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone does marvelous deeds. Praise be to his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. And then a short note, this concludes the Psalms, the prayers of David, uh, son of Jesse. I'm not sure that's exactly accurate based on uh, some others that are put in later. Uh, But this is certainly an an addendum that says um, King David has been responsible for much of the Psalms that we have read thus far. But it ends with doxology, that word doxology, kind of like our word theology, which is a combination of two Greek words, theos for God and logos for word. So theology is a good word. It doesn't have to scare us. It's basically saying a word about God or, or God's word on a particular subject. 
So if you have a theology of the Lord's Supper or a theology of worship or a theology of marriage or of work, you're just saying basically, hey, here's what I believe God's word says about that. And in the same way, doxology is a word, but a word of glory, a word of praise from that word doxa. And that's where we get that term doxology. Um, And praise be to the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone does marvelous deeds. What a great way to end uh, a psalm uh, that likely was read uh, when the king uh, became to power. And so the last psalm I want us to look at today, we've got a few more minutes, um, not very many, but a few, is uh, a psalm that contains a few things that you will note and that you will uh, remember. Hey, I've read that before. And that's Psalm 110. It's quoted in the New Testament a few times. It's even quoted by Jesus himself. And applying it to himself and using it as a question, (laughs) the source of a question uh, about himself and his relationship to King David and, and questioning the religious leaders, the Jewish leaders of his day who had been on him a lot in Matthew chapter 22. And so this psalm is considered a royal psalm. It's also considered a messianic psalm, a psalm about the Messiah, just like Psalm 22 is a psalm about uh, the Messiah and the suffering that he would uh, have, including that first verse, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22, verse 1, that Jesus remembers and and expresses from the cross. Uh, That psalm also was written by somebody in real life who had difficulties himself. And Jesus uh, identified with that um, and also identified with the deliverance that Psalm 22 speaks about. And in the same way, this psalm, Psalm 110, um, it's a psalm that that Jesus identified with. And it's a royal psalm. It's also a messianic psalm, a psalm about the anointed one. That's the term Messiah in Hebrew, the term Christ, Christos in the Greek. Um, and, and so there are things about this psalm, I think, that can only be applied and fully uh, fulfilled in Jesus. Psalm 110, you recognize these words right off the bat. Verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. <clears throat> so right off the bat, we remember that passage. Jesus himself quotes it, as I said, in Matthew 22. They've been on him. they have been trying to trap him, asking questions of him. And he had answered everyone, <coughs> excuse me. And so then he comes about and he says, okay, now I've got a question for you. How can David say, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Why would David, who was the ancestor of the Messiah, why would David call the Messiah Lord? It's usually the other way around. The younger person, the later, uh, the descendant refers to the ancestor, such as father Abraham. Uh, and yet Jesus says, why, why, I don't get, I don't get this. What do you guys think? Why would uh, King David refer to the Messiah as Lord? <clears throat> David should be the one who is greater. Of course, Jesus knew the answer to that, uh, but the, the people that were listening to him didn't, and he basically shut them up. Matthew 22 says, and then uh, Peter in that great sermon on the day of Pentecost uses this to establish that, hey, Jesus is the fulfillment of this psalm, uh, the one that David talked about and a a later psalm as well. Um, And then in Hebrews chapter one, the writer of Hebrews says, hey, look, 
Jesus is better and greater than the angels even because he God never said this to any of the angels the Lord said to my Lord sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool one day that will happen as we know and Jesus will come and and uh, he will be vindicated he was vindicated to an extent obviously when he was raised from the dead but one day we were talking in our Bible class last night about the wrath of God from 1 Thessalonians 1 and 2, uh, one day that patience of God will run out, 2 Peter 3 tells us, and there will be no more opportunities for repentance. And, and what will happen is that God will bring all the enemies of the Lord, uh, his son, and put them at his feet. And, um, and so that's what's looked ahead here. Verse 2 of Psalm 110, The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle. Arrayed in holy splendor, your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. So obviously a royal psalm. Uh, the king being, a, and especially if it's regarding David, uh, then you have a king who was very active in fighting for the people and very active in battle, a military leader as well as the king. The psalm goes on and begins in verse 4 with another familiar verse. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. We'll come back to that. The Lord is at your right hand, verse 5. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way and so will lift his head high. The king will be provided for. He'll have his physical needs met. But the king also will be victorious. God will provide for the king uh, to be victorious. He'll judge the nations. He'll crush kings on the day of his wrath. Um, and then that verse, verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. I love Dr. John Willis. It's such an intelligent, uh, smart, smart man, a great uh, teacher and faculty member at Abilene Christian when I was doing graduate work, wonderful Old Testament scholar. Um, and uh, I remember him teaching about Melchizedek and he said, yeah, we're just going to call him Mel. So whenever he talked about Melchizedek, he would refer to him as Mel. So I'm going to try to do that as well. Uh, when you think about Mel, you, you only he's a very mysterious guy in the Old Testament. He's only found in Genesis 14 verses 18 through 20. And it's that time when Abraham had gone off to try to uh, rescue his nephew Lot and and he had fought for his people and and he had been victorious. And then he came back uh, and he found this king of Salem, uh, which um, refers to Jerusalem in its antiquity. Uh, and um, and and then this mysterious guy, Mel, comes out and the writer of Hebrews picks up on this. And the writer of Hebrews talks a lot about Mel in Hebrews uh, chapters five through seven. And he talks about this verse, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And I'm sure that was something that was confusing uh, to everyone that heard it. And I bet they didn't understand it at all because Mel wasn't of the tribe of Aaron. Mel was an ancestor. He was before that. He wasn't even uh, related to Abraham. And and so how does how does the writer of Hebrews apply that? And, and how do you apply this psalm right here? Well, again, I think those are words that are likely only fulfilled in Jesus. And the writer of Hebrews recognized that. 
And so this mysterious priest, he was priest of the Most High, even though he wasn't related to Abraham at all. And so when Abraham came back, Abraham offered Mel uh, a, a tenth, a, a tithe, basically, of the spoils of war. And, and typically, the lesser offers up a, a sacrifice and an offering to the greater, just like we give of our means every week uh, to God. Uh, that's what Abraham did. And, uh, and Mel is the one that blessed Abraham. Usually it's the greater that blesses the lesser. And that's exactly, that's exactly what happened. And so the writer of Hebrews picks up on those things. And he makes a big point about that for three whole chapters in Hebrews 5 through 7. Establishing that Jesus, though he's not uh, a priest according to the line of Levi and ultimately Aaron, the brother of Moses, and all the priests had to be descended from Aaron. Um, Jesus was not. He wasn't even descended from Levi. Uh, Levi, one of the 12 sons of Jacob, Jesus was descended from the tribe of Judah, Levi's brother. Um, and so how could Jesus be a priest? Well, the writer of Hebrews calls him our great high priest. But he says it's not it's not the earthly priesthood. It's not the priesthood of the Jews that he's talking about. It's not the priesthood of Levi and Aaron. But it's the priesthood of Melchizedek. You are a priest forever in the order, not of Aaron, in the order of Melchizedek. And so it predates Aaron and it predates uh, that Levitical priesthood, as the Jews called it. And it predates it all the way back to Levi's ancestor to the time of Abraham, when Abraham offered up sacrifices uh, to Melchizedek. And the writer of Hebrews says, in a sense, uh, that was the, the Jewish priesthood offering up um, a sacrifice and acknowledging the greatness of the priesthood of Melchizedek, and specifically the great high priest, Jesus himself. What an incredible statement that is. Uh, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And again, that great verse one of Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Again, we wrap up this week of Royal Psalms, but also this election week, even though we don't know for sure who the president's gonna be. Um, we kind of have a feeling and an idea, but we're going to let that play out and let the political leaders take care of the po politics of it all. We will continue to serve the Lord. Uh, we will continue to act with grace to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world, because that's what we're called to be, whoever is occupying the White House. Um, but at the end of this very polarizing election season, there's, uh, we pray for our divided nation, and it truly is divided. And there are some very real concerns, but at the same time, we look back on these royal psalms, and we're reminded, especially from these psalms today, of the one who is really on the throne. Remember in Isaiah 6, Isaiah had that great vision where he saw God on the throne in the year that the king of Israel, Isaiah, had died. Isaiah was led in on the throne room of God and saw that God was still on the throne, and he is today as well. He is today as well. And what's more, Jesus is still our great high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And he is so much better and so much greater than any human priest could ever be, than any human preacher, than any human king, than any human president or congressman or senator. Although all of those are so important, but we owe our ultimate allegiance and praise 
to the Lord God, to Jesus himself, the King of Kings and the Prince of Peace. I pray that that Prince of Peace uh, will guide you and give you peace in the days ahead. And I pray that that King of Kings would be the one ruler that you ultimately follow. Amen. Mm-hmm. <clears throat>